Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And as you're turning there this morning, I just want to, uh, to say thank you to those of you who uh, reached out to us as we were traveling and on vacation, and we had a, a wonderful time as a family. But I just wanted to say uh, that in the times of traveling, we, we got to worship with some wonderful congregations, but there's no place like home. Uh, what a joy it is to be back here and to be back in the pulpit this morning. And I'm excited about the message this morning because what we see here in this passage in Matthew 26 is this wonderful comparison and contrast of, of three different groups of people and individuals. And when it comes now to this moment in the book or the gospel of Matthew where Matthew is kind of reaching the culmination of everything that he's been working for throughout this book. So Matthew chapter 26, and if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 26, we're going to be reading uh, the first 16 verses. These are the words of the Lord. When Jesus had finished all these words, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. You can be seated. Again, as I said, we're going to be looking at this comparison and contrast, really, between these three groups of people and these three individuals. And so, Matthew has been set out to proclaim the truth of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah to a Jewish audience. We talked about this in the very beginning of this study through the Gospel of Matthew, that each one of the Gospel writers wrote with a particular audience in mind. And God did this through the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that no matter who was reading one of the Gospels, it would speak to them in a very profound way. And Matthew, again, is writing to a Jewish audience, and he uses so many of the Old Testament prophecies because he wants a Jewish person to be able to sit and read and understand the Gospel in such a way that there would be no doubt in their mind that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of God's promised Messiah. And as we come here to chapter 26, we've now kind of reached this pinnacle because everything that Matthew has been doing has been building up to this moment because now is the moment when Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to go to that final moment in his life where he will become this perfect fulfillment of everything. He's fulfilled all the prophecies up until this moment and now is this final moment of fulfillment that he's going to go and to become the sacrificial lamb, the perfect sacrificial lamb for God. Now, also in this passage, we see a, a couple of things that I want us to consider from the outset, outset of this, is that number one, 
is that Jesus is going into this, this event totally and perfectly willingly. He is submitting himself to the will of the Father. No one is forcing Jesus in this moment to do these things. And everything that we see unfold here from, verse, from chapter 26 uh, and through the next few chapters, everything is happening according to the perfect plan and the will of God. But that doesn't erase the responsibility of the hands of those to whom Jesus is betrayed into. It does not erase their sinfulness. It does not erase their guilt in, in acting and performing on the things that they do. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice in this passage is that there is a providential design. A providential design, and that's told us here in verse 26 in the opening two verses. He says, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. This is a providential design because it was a plan that had been put in place before the foundation of the world. It's important that we understand this. And we've talked about it over and over again, but it, it behooves us to consider it even once more again, that Jesus' death on the cross was not God's plan B. It was always plan A. From the very beginning, the Scripture tells us that before the foundation of the world, He was the Lamb set aside to be sacrificed. And so there's oftentimes this idea that in the Garden of Eden that, that everything was kind of taken aback when, when man sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned and, 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 eat of the, and ate of the fruit, that all of a sudden now it's like, okay, well, now we've got to do something different. Sin has entered the world. Let's, let's recalculate. Let's, let's, let's come up with a different idea. But no, from the very beginning, before the world was ever formed, before human beings ever were put upon the face of the earth, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit set in plan this motion that Jesus would come as the perfect atoning lamb to be sacrificed on the cross. And so when Jesus speaks of this here, he speaks of this knowing what is coming because Jesus knew when he came to the earth, when he took upon human flesh, he knew what was going to happen. He knew the end to which he was walking towards. So now we see that this is a, a planned event. This was everything happening according to the purpose and the plan of God. Jesus here references the Passover because this is what's happening now in Jerusalem. And it sets all of these things into perfect events. The Passover was the first great feast in the Jewish calendar, commemorating the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt. You remember, if you remember the story, when they're in Egypt and Moses goes back to Pharaoh over and over again, and Pharaoh will not let the people of Israel go. And so finally, God sends this one great cataclysmic event, the killing of the firstborn. But before that happens, God tells his people, go through and you kill a lamb and you take the blood and you use a hyssop branch and you put the blood on the doorpost. And when the angel of death passes through Egypt, it will pass over your house. And so in celebration and remembrance of what God has done or what God did for them, the Jewish people celebrated the feast of Passover. And then after the Feast of Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so oftentimes you'll see this because Passover was on this one particular day, but then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was afterwards for the, the week following. And you'll oftentimes see the two kind of categorized together, the entire event of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread referenced as Passover here. So here we are two days before Passover begins here in Jerusalem, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to be handed over for crucifixion. And what's interesting about this is that Jesus has been preparing his disciples for this from the very beginning. This makes, in fact, the fourth time in their ministry that Jesus has talked about the events of his life. 
the, 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 what was going to happen to him in the end. And I wanted to read those this morning just so we can kind of see how Jesus, even very early on, began to try to prepare his disciples for this moment. And each time he gave a little bit more detail about what was going to happen. Matthew chapter 16, he told them from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And then in Matthew 17, and while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. And then in Matthew chapter 20, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And then Jesus says here, the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, it's interesting. When we look at these passages, you, you, you would have to think, well, surely the disciples understood everything that Jesus was saying. But we know from the Bible that they didn't. That even in that moment, that after Jesus was crucified and, and buried, what did they do? Well, they went back to the house and, and they're just mournful, right? Because Jesus is gone. We're without hope. This man who we've given three years of our lives to, followed him around, given up, sacrificed our jobs and families and everything and followed him around, and now he's dead. Oh, woe is us. What do we do? But Jesus had told them, this is exactly what is going to happen. They should not have been surprised. And Jesus not only told them he was going to die, he told them that he was going to be raised up again. So he tried to prepare them. He tried to make them ready for these things to happen. Because again, all of this was by providential design. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew it was going to happen from one of his own. He knew that the scribes and the Pharisees were going to plot after them. They would take him in. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew he was going to die. But Jesus also knew that he was going to be resurrected on the third day. And so he prepared them for that moment. What's also interesting about this passage here, just in these two verses, we, is we understand the pace of the events. Because there's something to be considered here, because Jesus gives very specific details here. He says that after Two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. The exact moment of Jesus' death on the cross was not accidental. Every bit of Jesus' death was perfectly planned by God, even down to the moment of His death. Because you see... And we're going to find this later on in the next in a couple of verses down that the chief priests and the elders, when they were plotting to put Jesus to death, they wanted to wait until after the festival was over. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not going to wait till after the festival is over. It's going to happen here at the very beginning. It's going to happen on the day of Passover. Not only is it going to happen on the day of Passover, but Jesus's death is going to occur at the very moment when the sacrificial lambs were being slain for Passover. Because he was the ultimate fulfillment. So in the moment when the lambs are being sacrificed to provide temporary forgiveness, the true lamb is being sacrificed on the cross to provide ultimate forgiveness. 
So again, it's a providential design, not only in its purpose, not only in the preparation that Jesus gave for them, but in the pace in which it happened. The time period of when Jesus goes to the cross is not coincidence, but perfectly planned by God. I want to ask you this question this morning. Do you trust and believe in the plans and the providential design of God? Because we must. We must trust in that. Because sometimes we look at things and we have questions about why things happen the way that they do. But we see here that in this moment, God's perfect plan being carried out is exactly this, this, beautiful, uh, this beautiful picture that had been put in place from the very foundation of the world. And brothers and sisters, be encouraged in the fact that if God can put a plan in place from the very foundation of the world, and over thousands of years carry all of this out, down to the very single moment in which Jesus goes to the cross, He can very easily take care of the things in our life. He can very easily take care of the moments and the trials and the tribulations that we go through. So there's this providential design that we see here. We see it all throughout the Scripture in so many other events, but we see it most beautifully in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So not only is there a providential design in this passage, but we also see that there is a private conspiracy. This is where we get into the details of the people involved in the final moments of Jesus' life. A private conspiracy because it says that the, verse 3, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they were saying... Not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now this was a conspiracy because there was a collected hatred. The chief priest describes every one of the religious leaders despised Jesus. Throughout the entirety of his ministry, he had gone head to head, toe to toe with the religious leaders because he confronted them in their sin. He confronted them in their pride. He confronted them in their arrogance. And in fact, he confronted them in their blasphemy against God. Because although they claimed to be experts in the law, and they were in a sense, they, they, they knew the Old Testament law, but what they were is they were, burden, uh, they were burden bestowers. They had put heavier burdens upon people by adding to the law, by adding all of these extra regulations which enabled them to, to maintain power over the people, but kept the people under bondage. And instead of the Word of God providing hope into people's lives, it just provided dreariness and bondage and weight. And so they hated Jesus. And they had long sought all throughout Jesus' ministry to do away with him, to find some way to get rid of this man who, who posed so great a threat to them. And so now their hatred has grown to the point where they're going to be willing to do whatever it takes to get rid of Jesus. And so they come together in this idea to seize him away. Now the high priest at the time was Caiaphas. Uh, he had been appointed high priest about 18 years earlier. So by the time we get to this moment in, in the life of Israel, uh, the, the high priest has no longer appointed by uh, hereditary means. It was not in a, in a family lineage as it had always been throughout time, but now it was a, a appointed by the government. And so what's interesting about Caiaphas is that he served for a long period of time, 18 years or longer here, um, 
So he served in office for 18 years. And the reason that that was so stunning was because of this governmental position. This, it really had turned into a political position. And from the period of 37 B.C. to A.D. 67, there were about 28 high priests. And he has the longest reign in there, which shows us that Caiaphas was a very cunning and a shrewd politician. He was willing to do whatever it took to maintain his position as high priest. And so when he looks out, he sees Jesus as this ultimate threat to his position as high priest. Because if Jesus' ministry is allowed to continue, he's going to bring more and more people into his, under his teaching. If, if, if Jesus is allowed to continue to live, he's going to begin to sway more and more people away from the office of the high priest and, and to expose them for who they truly are. So this has nothing to do with the fact that Caiaphas believes that Jesus is teaching false doctrine, but it has everything to do with that he threatens his position as high priest. And so he's going to do anything he can to get him out of the way. Who says that they... Not only had this collected hatred, but they were really cunning in the way they did do it. Because notice what they says: they plotted to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now, there's no doubt that they knew that Jesus was in town. Uh, it would not have taken long for the, the murmur of the people to reach the religious leaders that this Messiah figure, Jesus, had come to Jerusalem. And they knew he would be there, right? Because he, he had to come to Jerusalem as a Jewish person to take part in the feast of Passover. You can almost imagine that here in Caiaphas' house, all of these religious leaders together saying, well, what can we do about this? Now, how we, we know where Jesus is probably staying, and we've got to figure out a way to get in there and to get out without being seen. We've got to figure out a way to, to kidnap him away. Which really just shows the utter wickedness of where the religious elite had gotten to in the day of Jesus. That they would see a man who had done nothing wrong, who had never sinned, who had only done good for people, who had preached the truth of God's Word, who had demonstrated His knowledge and His wisdom of the Old Testament and of God's law, who had perfectly fulfilled every single prophecy about the Messiah, who had healed the sick, who had raised the dead, who had caused the blind to see, and that they would look at Him with such utter hatred and disdain that they wanted to seize Him away and to kill him. They were really careful cowards. They had a collected hatred, but they were careful cowards because notice what it says in verse 5. They were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. They hated Jesus. They wanted him dead. They were willing to do whatever it took because they were going to seize him away, kidnap him, and then put him to death. But they said, we can't do it now. There's too many people. We can't do it now because the people wouldn't allow it. Now, during this time, the governor had ordered a census taken by the high priest. He wanted to know how many Jews there were. He was going to uh, relay this number to the Roman government to understand how great the Jewish um, the crowd was growing. And so they had them do a census during one time of Passover. And Josephus, the famous historian, writes that during that one Passover, they sacrificed 256,500 lambs during that one Passover festival. That's an astonishing number. 
You think about that, 256,000 lambs. Now, Jewish custom did not allow a number less than 10 for each lamb that was sacrificed. So it puts the number at approximately 2.6 million people that were in Jerusalem during the time of Passover. So you can imagine this. 2.6 million people crowded into the city of Jerusalem. And the religious leaders knew that many of those people would have come from the Sea of Galilee. Many of those people would have come from Bethany. Many of people would have come from all of those regions where Jesus had been doing the majority of his work. And even those inside of Jerusalem had heard of what Jesus had done. They had heard him teach in the synagogues and in the streets. And they knew that if we try to do something now, the people will go into an uproar and we'll never survive this moment. So they said, we'll wait until all the people go home. And then we will get Jesus and we'll put him to death and we'll be rid of our problem. Their plot was against Christ. Their plot was against his message. Their plot was against him as a person. Their plot was against him as the Messiah. And they were willing to do whatever it took to put him away. They didn't want to listen to what he had to say. They didn't want to listen to the truth of who he was. You know, there are many today that continue a plot against Christ. Not to put him to death, because that is not possible. But to ignore his purpose, his work, and his offer. These religious leaders were plotting to put him to death because they did not want to listen to what Jesus had to say. They did not want to listen to the free offer of truth and salvation that Jesus offered unto them. And so they desired to put him to death. And people today desire to ignore Christ, ignore his message, and to push any other thing out front instead of listening to what Christ has to say. Are you plotting against Christ today? Are you doing anything you can to avoid being confronted with the truth of who He is? Because this is exactly what these religious leaders were doing. Anything they could do in order to be able to avoid being confronted with the truth of who Christ is. So we not only saw a private conspiracy, but I want you to notice now, thirdly, a precious offering. I want you to notice how beautifully... Matthew uses this story to contrast with the wicked actions of the religious leaders. Look at verse 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why the waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. Now, Matthew, Mark, and John all give records of these events. And from each account, we can pick up just a little more details about what happens in this moment. Now, the Gospel of Luke includes a similar story, but that one happened earlier in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Here we are in the city of Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem. 
Now, if you go back and you read the, the stories of these events, what you're going to find is that the Gospel of John tells us that this story actually happened about six days before the Passover, uh, which has called some people sometimes to question um, the validity of Matthew's including it here and Mark's including it here um, in this place marker uh, of, of the events of Jesus. And so what we have to understand and realize is that when we look at the Gospels, again, they were written by different authors and written for different purposes. John is much more of a stickler on the chronological events. Uh, when he writes down these things, he tries to keep them as close as he can into the exact series of days of when these events happen. Matthew is much more concerned, again, about presenting Jesus as the Messiah, about painting a picture of Jesus instead of showing the chronology of the events. And so what Matthew is doing here is using this story about what happened in Bethany just a few days earlier, to, again, to contrast between the religious leaders and what they did and how they responded to Jesus, how Judas is going to respond to Jesus that we see in just a few moments. But we see this beautiful picture of a precious offering. Now, we're here in the home, we're in Bethany. The story tells us that we're in the home of Simon the leper. We don't know much about Simon the leper. Uh, from the other gospel accounts, we understand that at this home, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus uh, were there, which they lived in Bethany. And so many people have inferred that perhaps the home of Simon the leper is the, is the father of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now we can know from uh, the description here that he was a leper who had been healed. Uh, because if he had not been healed, he would not have been able to be at home. He would not have been able to have a meal together with other people. So we know that this was perhaps a man that Jesus had healed sometime during his ministry. He had become friends with him. And again, if he was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they would have had a very close connection. But here they are gathered together in home, and they're sharing a meal. Now, when we see a meal being shared in the time of the New Testament, it's important that we remember how they ate a meal together. They did not sit at a table like we do normally. Like when we go out to lunch after church today, we're all going to be sitting at a table. They had a table, but it's very low to the ground. And they reclined at the table. They basically laid out on the ground. And so here they are reclining at the table and, and kind of leaning up on their arms. And they would eat and communicate and talk and share a meal together. The scripture tells us is as they're doing this, that Mary comes up to the table. And we begin to see the humility in the heart of Mary. Now we know that Mary is the one who in the earlier stories was always there sitting at the feet of Jesus. She desired to know and understand the truth of who Jesus was. She believed Jesus. She believed Him as the Messiah. She believed Him as the, as the Son of God. She believed Him as the promised one. And so as they're reclining around the table, Mary comes into the room, and in her hand she has a, an alabaster bottle. Now, alabaster is a very beautiful stone, and they would, were able to take it and to carve it into different shapes and figures. And, and here she has a, a bottle a vial and that's carved out of alabaster. And inside is a very costly perfume. They called it nard or spike nard. It was a very, very fragrant perfume and, and, and really known as one of the most fragrant perfumes during that period of time. And not only was it a very fragrant perfume, but it was a very, very costly perfume. The Scripture tells us that it was worth about 300 denarii. Now, 300 denarii doesn't sound like a, maybe a whole lot to you this morning. It doesn't sound like a whole lot to, to us just hearing it offhand. But when we understand that 300 denarii in the time in which Jesus lived was about one year's wages for a working person. So this jar of perfume cost as much as one year's wages for a working person. This is a very, very costly bottle of perfume. 
And so Mary comes. Again, we, we have to understand her heart. We have to understand her desire, her, her, her love for Christ. And so she comes here into this room, and as they are reclined at the table, it says that she poured it on his head. She really uh, anointed him, in a sense, because in, throughout the Old Testament, you see the pouring on of oil on the head is this sign of anointing. And what does the Messiah mean? Messiah means the anointed one. So there's this beautiful picture taking place here as Mary pours this oil upon Jesus' head. Now, commentators are in disagreement about in this moment whether Mary fully understood what she was doing. Whether she was just doing this as as a sign of demonstration of her love or whether she truly fully understood even more than the disciples did about what Jesus was getting ready to do. And I tend to fall on the side that I believe she did. I believe her heart and her desire to, to sit and listen to Christ so intently Without any preconceived ideas. You know, the disciples, if we're honest, had a little preconceived ideas about who they were going to be when Jesus came into his kingdom. Who was going to sit on the right hand? Who was going to be the most important in his kingdom? But Mary, she loved Jesus. She knew the truth that he proclaimed. And I believe that she knew exactly what Jesus was getting ready to do. That she had heard him talk about his death and she believed him. She believed that his death was going to be sacrificial. She believed that he was going to the cross to die. And she believed, because she had seen by her own eyes, that Jesus had the power to raise others from the dead and that he would be able to raise himself from the dead. William Barclay said of her in this moment that she gave this perfume because it was the most precious thing she had. He continues, love never calculates. Love never thinks about how little it can decently give. Love's one desire is to give to the uttermost limits, and when it has given all it has to give, it still thinks the gift too little. We have not even begun to be Christian if we think of giving to Christ and His church in terms of as little as we respectably can. Mary's humility and her love was demonstrated in this costly sacrifice. That she would take this perfume worth a year's wages. She would break it open. And not just, you know, we would consider it a a, a great sacrifice, right? If she had this costly bottle of perfume and she broke open the top and maybe just poured a little bit, right? Maybe about two months worth upon Jesus' head. But she didn't. She poured the whole thing out. She dumped the whole bottle over. Because that was the love that she had for Christ. That was the love that she had for her Messiah, for her Savior. But I want you to notice in contrast with her humility is the disciples' haste. Now Matthew does not name the originator of the objection here, but he tells us that the disciples were indignant when they saw this. They weren't just just taken aback, but they were indignant. And they said, why this waste? This perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor, but... John tells us who it was. It says, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who, intending to betray him, said this. And John also gives us the reason for Judas' objection. He said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. You see, Judas had been entrusted with the money bag, and he oftentimes helped himself to what was inside. So when Judas saw this event happening, 
All Judas could see in his mind was money floating out the window. Because he thought, well, if I could just get that bottle of perfume, you know what Mary should have done is said, Jesus, here, I want to give this to you as a gift, and then you could take it and sell it and, and use it in your ministry. Because in Judas's eyes, he said, man, there's a whole year's worth of wages that we can put into the money bag, and then it'll be mine. But what's interesting is that Matthew says that it wasn't just him, but that some of the other disciples were indignant as well. Because why? Because they were carried up in, in, in what Judas began to object about. So he was objecting about something wickedly and evilly, but, but on the outside it looked, it looked good, right? He, he has, man, Judas, what a heart for the poor. What, I mean, what a, what a man who, who has such a heart and compassion for the poor. And so the other disciples were like, well, I don't, wanna, I don't want it to look like I don't love the poor, right? I don't, I don't want it to look like I don't have a heart for, for those who are hurting. So yeah, Jesus, why, why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor? It didn't take long for the murmuring to spread. But what's interesting is that in this moment, as one commentator pointed out, they had no right to complain. That bottle of perfume didn't belong to them. It belonged to Mary. And she could do with that bottle of perfume whatever she wanted to do. And she used it in a way that was much more of a worshipful thing to Christ and to His honor and to His glory than it would be if she had sold it and given the money away to feed the poor. So there's her humility, there's the disciples' haste, but I want you to notice the Master's honor. Verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, now the disciples weren't speaking out loud. They were murmuring amongst themselves. They were whispering to one another, but we know that Jesus knows all things. He knows the thoughts of men. And so Jesus, aware of this, he understands what they're over there murmuring about. And so he says to them, why do you bother the woman? For she's done a good deed to me. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Can you imagine the disciples in this moment? Because here they over here murmuring, right? They're, they're talking to one another about, well, we should have given this money to feed the poor. This money would have been better served if we had taken it and sold it and it could help more poor people. And then Jesus turns around and looks at them and he says, yeah, the poor you're going to always have, but you're not always going to always have me. They knew in that moment that he knew exactly what they had been talking about. And so he points this out. Now, Jesus here is not saying that it's not good to feed the poor because Jesus had taken care of the poor. And we're commanded to take care of the orphan and the widow and the poor and to help those who are in need. But what Jesus is saying, he says, in this moment, he said, the poor will be there tomorrow. They'll be there next week. They're always going to be there and minister to them and take care of them. He said, but I'm not always going to be with you. And in this moment, the worship that is greatest, the worship that is the most important is that you understand who I am and what I've come to do. And Mary understood that. Mary was more than willing to give up something of great value for Christ. Mary counted the cost, and she was willing to pay it. She was willing to make this great sacrifice. And in her mind, the great cost of this perfume was nothing in comparison to the greatness of Christ and her desire to love, honor, and to worship Him. You know, as I thought about that, I thought about many people throughout the years who have weighed the cost and been willing to do the same. I think of John Payton, 
who was a man who was very successful in his own right in ministry. He had done a lot. He had accomplished in, in many churches and, and was becoming very well known as a speaker and as a preacher. But then he heard about the need in the New Hebrides to go, for somebody to go and to preach the gospel to a group of people that were classified as cannibals. This was not an easy assignment. And as he heard over and over again the pleading of these missionary societies for somebody to go, finally one day he said, well, if nobody else is going to go, then it must be me that needs to go. And all of those who were around him looked at him and said, John, you're being a fool. Look at everything that you have. You have good finances, you have good knowledge, you have, uh, you have, good, have good ministry, you have a good reputation. Why would, you, why would you give all of that up to go work amongst the cannibals? And he said this. He said, my mind was resolved that though I loved my work and my people, I felt I could leave them to the care of Jesus who would soon provide them a better pastor than myself. And that with regards to my life among the cannibals, as I only once to die, I was content to leave the time and the place and the means in the hands of God. For he had already marvelously preserved me when visiting cholera patients and the fever-stricken poor. So that on that score I had positively no further concern in having left it all absolutely to the Lord, whom I desired to love and honor, whether in life or death. One of his friends said to him one day, arguing against him going to the New Hebrides, says, the cannibals, John, you will be eaten by the cannibals. And he said, at last I replied to him, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your future is to be laid into the grave and then be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can be live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And on the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Lord. I also think of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was a well-known cricket player in England and very successful. In fact, he was classified as one of the greatest cricket players of his day. His father was very wealthy. He had everything in his life laid out for him. He was going to inherit lots and lots of money. He was a successful athlete. Everybody knew who he was. And then one day he was confronted with his sin. One day he was confronted with his pride because his brother was on his deathbed and his brother asked him, he said, what's, what's all of this worth when it comes to eternity? And so he gave his life to Christ and was in college at Cambridge and a number of his friends would gather together and pray and they heard about the work of the missionary of the missionary work in China. And so C.T. Studd began to pray and, and ask God whether it was his desire that he would go to China to the mission field. And so C.T. Studd gave away all the money that he had and left England to go to the mission field. He would labor there in the mission field in China for 15 years and then went to India for six years and then to Africa where he would labor until his death in 1931. And when he left, everyone again asked the same question. C.T., you're, you're being an idiot, right? You're giving away everything. You're giving away all these things to what? To go to China where no one else is? To go to the mission field where no one else is? Why would you do this? And perhaps C.T. Studd is most well known for a poem he wrote which ended in this way. Only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. This was the heart of Mary in this moment. She was willing to give up everything. I mean, this is, again, this is, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how valuable this thing was. This was like somebody giving up their entire bank account. Saying, I'm going to go down to the bank. I'm going to take everything I have out of the bank. I'm going to go buy this vial of perfume and I'm going to just break it open and pour it over Jesus' head. Because in the moment, once it's done, it's done. Right? There's, there's no more perfume. She can't gather it back up at the end. But brothers and sisters, the sacrifice she made was so beautiful, so precious, that here 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. Because of her love and her desire to give to her master. I love what James Boyce said. He said, do not think if you give Jesus your most precious possession that he will overlook it and not know that you have given it. He cherishes the gifts of every yielded heart. Your gift will be different from Mary's. It may be your free time or a bank account or even your children. Would you give your children to the Lord's service if he should call them? Would you give yourself if he should call you? Would you give of your wealth to send others? Nothing given out of love will ever be overlooked by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you will hear the voices of this world tell you, don't go. It's too costly. Don't serve in that ministry. You're too talented to do that. You, you've got other things that you should do. You'll hear people say, don't give. Don't sacrifice. But what we want to do is be more like Mary. And to give everything for the worship and the joy and the glory and honor of our Lord. Jesus tells them that she has done a good deed. That she has prepared, in a sense, she poured on this perfume on his body to prepare me for burial, which helps us to, to think about this mind. In the, in the time in which Jesus lived, there was no um, funeral homes. There was no uh, preparation of the body in order to keep them from, from rotting. All they could do is, is to pour on this heavy-scented perfume and to wrap the body up in an effort to try to keep it from stinking too much before they got it into the grave. And remember, Jesus is going to die in such a way. He's going to die as a criminal. He's going to die as a thief. And typically in those moments, people who died in such a way were not even afforded the simple pleasures of this simple preparation that they would do for burial. They would just take these bodies and heap them somewhere in unmarked graves. And so in this moment, Mary's sacrifice was such as that even though he is not yet dead, she's already pouring on this perfume to prepare him for the death that is coming. She's preparing for his sacrifice on the cross. She was willing to give up everything in this sacrificial act of worship. My question to you this morning is this. What are you giving up? What would you give up? Is there anything in this moment? Is, and, and I could almost guarantee that there might be someone here this morning that when I ask that question, you would say, anything but this, Lord. Anything but that thing. I'm willing to do it. But brothers and sisters, we have to be willing to give up everything in honor and service to our Lord.
The last thing I want you to notice here in this passage is a profane betrayal. We saw a providential design, a private conspiracy, a precious offering, and now we see a profane betrayal. Look at verses 14 and 16. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. This was a purposeful betrayal. Nobody forced Judas to go. He went of his own volition. Other gospel writers tell us that at this moment, Satan entered into Judas and was controlling him. He, he had given himself over in such wickedness and desires that now he was filled with pure evil. And the question is, why would Judas do this? Why would Judas have spent these some three and a half years following Jesus, seeing all the miracles, seeing all the wonderful things? Why in this moment would he do this? There's a number of guesses. Some people say that Judas was disgruntled with the Lord because he gets to this moment and he realizes that Jesus is serious about this going to the cross and dying business. And he's frustrated because he wanted Jesus to rise in victory and power. He wanted to be a part of this, uh, of this, of this rise to prestige. And so now that he realizes this is not going to happen, that he, he's disappointed. Some think that maybe he hoped to, to spur Jesus into some type of political action. That by turning him over and by the, the scribes and the Pharisees coming to arrest him, that hopefully Jesus in that moment would instead respond with anger and respond with, with power and to push back against the government. And then some people think that his thought was, well, I couldn't get the 300 denarii from the bottle of ointment. I'll get what I can. Because his greed had grown so great. We don't know. But what we do know that it's such a cold and calculated and evil deception that Judas would leave this time together with Jesus and go and plot to have him killed. It's, it's, it's woeful because you see the amount of money that, that he gets here is such an insignificant amount of money. It's, it's the price of money that one was called to pay in the Old Testament if, if, a, if a slave had been gored by an ox by somebody else, the owner of the ox was to give uh, the master of that slave 30 shekels of silver. So in a sense, when you thought about the lowest amount paid for a person in that period of time, and the idea was that this is the lowest price. This is the, just the, an insignificant amount, but it's so disgraceful of what the amount was. But it comes as a fulfillment of even in prophecy in the Old Testament in Zechariah. Chapter 11, it says, So they waited out 30 shekels of silver as my wages, and the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. It was a purposeful and woeful deception. And in a sense, what Judas did here in this moment was utterly blasphemous. Because Jesus, Judas knows what he's doing. He completely is responsible for his actions. Blasphemy is, is knowing, what true, knowing who the truth of God is and despising it in some way or speaking against it. Doing things or saying things to blaspheme the truth of who God is. And here 
Judas performs this ultimate act of blasphemy because he knows who Christ is. And instead of worshiping Him, instead of giving His all to Him, He betrays Him. Here this morning, we've been presented with three groups of people. The chief priests and the elders and their hatred of Jesus. Their desire to do away with Him. Their desire to ignore His truth and desire to despise Him and do away with Him. We've seen the betrayal of Judas. His blasphemous actions and giving Jesus up for 30 pieces of silver. And we've seen the worshipful heart of Mary in this offering that she made to Christ. And I would ask you this morning, where do you find yourself in this story? Perhaps you're here this morning and, and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've tried to avoid it. You've known the truth of the gospel. You've known the truth of what Jesus' claims are, but yet you've done everything you can in your life to say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do everything I can to do something else. I, I want to despise it away and do away with it. Maybe you're here this morning and there could be one here that is in a sense like Judas that has made a profession but you know in your heart that you've never put your true faith and trust in Christ. That your heart is filled with more evil than it is righteousness. But perhaps you're here this morning and you know you've trusted in Christ. You're here this morning confident in your faith because the Scripture tells us that we have a hope. That we know that we're in Christ. We know the joy that comes from knowing Him. But perhaps you see the example of Mary this morning. And you realize, as we all should, that there is more that we can do. That there's more that we should do in the worship of our Lord. That we should be willing to give up everything and sacrifice to Him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for this passage. And Lord, I would not be honest. And Lord, we would not be honest if we did not confess that this passage convicts us. Lord, to see the heart of Mary sandwiched between these two heinous acts, the religious leader's desire to kill Jesus and Judas' betrayal, but right there in the middle, this beautiful picture of true love and worship of you. And Lord, how often we can get caught up with this world and our own desires and forget that you are worthy of everything. That you are worthy of all of our praise, of all of our life, of all of our existence. You are worthy of it all. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember that each and every day to give ourselves more fully to You. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to ask that question of You. What is it that You would have us to do? 
Lord, we know that in this moment we are here because this is where you have us. We're not here by accident this morning. We're not here by chance. We're here because this is where you have us. But Father, guide us to know what it is that you would have us to do while we're here. That we would not just be existing in Waynesville or in Haywood County, but Father, that we would give ourselves to the work of the gospel in this place and wherever you may call us to go. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.